Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where did you come from? So my name is Danny. Um, some people know me as Danny Bradley and some people know me as Danny Moore. And I'm from Blanchestown. Um, a lot of people know me nowadays for running and being in recovery and doing stuff like that but I suppose I'll just I'll tell you a little bit about my life and how it was growing up and I suppose where I am today and how I got to where I am today so my first two years I would have lived in Ballymun with my mother um, I would have been taken away from my mother then and put into foster care in a home first and then in from the home into foster care. Why? Um, it was just my mother was an alcoholic. Um, I don't know who my father was. I never will know who my father was. Um, not that he doesn't bother me in any way, you know. Um, she had her own demons, her own battles and stuff. So I was put into a home and then I was fostered to my auntie, who I call my mother today. Who was a fantastic person and also um, her partner who I call my father today. Um, so growing up, um, growing up, I had a good life. Um, I was never, never needed that, and I was always cared. Did for. you know who your, who your auntie was? Did you know she wasn't your mom? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew she wasn't my mom. Um, so growing up, I knew who my mother was. I never had a relationship as such. You know, to be once or twice where she'd pop into the house where I was, and I think as a kid. It's just weird, you know, you didn't really sort of how to act. So when I seen her, I sort of looked at her as a stranger. Um, and something that always sticks out with me was when you're a kid and and somebody always says, don't ever take anything off strangers, you know. I remember I was probably eight or nine and she had, she had another son for another person and she had come up for his communion. And I remember I was standing outside the chipper and she was asking, oh, how are you and stuff. And I was just, yeah, just being polite, I guess. And she's like, can I get you something in the shop? And I was like, no. And my thinking there was, I was always brought up not to take things off strangers. But I suppose what I always have is the look on her face. It was sheer, I don't know, like the straw, you know, that way, like that. I was a son and I was looking at her as a stranger, you know, and... That's something that always sticks out in my head. Um, and she died when I was 12. Um, she was very sick. She would have drank a lot. So obviously got the better of her. So she died. But growing up, I would never have a relationship. And it was always something that I've always thought about. You know, um, I carry a picture around me, 
wallet. It's the only picture I have of her. Um, do I wish things were different? Absolutely. Um, do I wish... Do you... I'm going to stop you for one second. When... Who told you she was dead? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember the time. Yeah, it was... It was the person who I call mother today, you know. Um, she would have told me that she was, de- she was dead. And I don't remember how I felt. Because... There was nothing there to feel. I never had a relationship as such to feel anything. It was only later in life when I grew up is when I started to really feel the pain and the loss. And when you grow up not knowing somebody but wanting to know somebody so much, that's when you sort of, it sort of comes back to you, you know that way? Um, How did it come back to you? Just... To know that, like, that was my mother and she gave birth to me and I started to go into her thoughts and how she felt. So then I started to feel those feelings a little bit, you know. Um, I started to sort of say, I wonder how she felt and I wonder what her thinking was when she thought about me. So when I get these feelings, then now I wonder if things were different. So I suppose you just feel that little bit of hurt to know that you never actually really had a good relationship and you always wanted it, you know. Um, so when she died I couldn't feel out I didn't feel out I remember at the funeral and stuff and somebody had said to me um, a person from the area had said to me uh, oh, whose funeral is he you know? and I looked and I said my mum and they sort of sniggered as if to say no your mum is over there like it's not your mum that's something that I'll always remember as well and I was like no it is my mum and they because not many people knew I was fostered so that's how people know me as Bradley's as Danny Bradley because I was growing up as a Bradley I was in school as a Bradley um, so I suppose later in life people started to realise I was fostered and people started to know my story and stuff then um, I have other brothers that don't live with me um, I have one sister that did live with me she was fostered with me went to the same family I'm really really close to her um, that's my sister Grace but um, I suppose even though I was cared for and loved in that family and always told I was a part of and never wanted for anything. I think it was just myself as I was growing up. I felt like I had a chip on my shoulder. I was somewhat different. I thought myself like as like the black sheep, you know that way? I was never made to feel like that. It was just something in the back of my mind. Um, and when people ask me now, do you remember being in the home, Madonna House years ago? I don't. And then I said to myself, did, does my mind just want to, didn't want me to remember those things, you know? Um, like people tell me stories about, oh, remember in Ballymore Flats, you were found under a buggy eating a head of cabbage and stuff like that, you know, all these little stories. And I, like, really, yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah, you were, you had to get taken away, you were bleeding covered and shit from head to toe. And, you know, all this, this little, little things, like, and... Were you told that? As a teenager? No, so it would have been more as an adult, you know, mm. and it would have been, when people were telling me this, it would have been sort of like an, ah, Jesus, you know, that type of thing. It was never a real sit down and, oh, let mm. me tell you this. It was always mm. a, ah, Jesus, I remember this story, and that story was always from people older than me. Um, How did it hit you? It was just a bit, it was hard to know how it felt because it didn't feel real. It was almost like they were telling me a story of a person or a baby or a child that I didn't know. Um, so when they were telling me these stories, I didn't know. Um, and in the home, my sister was able to 
tell me about how it was in the home and I just didn't, don't remember. And I remember there was a red chair, a big red sofa. And I remember this one memory that will always stick with me. It's something that stands out today. Um, I was in a buggy. It must have been somebody who walked there. And I remember, you know when a kid is crying and crying and crying repeatedly and you have the same thing? I was calling a girl by the name of Michelle. I will never, ever know who she is or if she ever walked there or what she had any involvement. But I remember crying and I used to wake up with nightmares calling that name Michelle, but crying, Michelle, Michelle. And I don't know who it was. So obviously, but I remember being in the buggy and like, I don't know, maybe falling asleep, crying, calling that name, you know, but that's something that sticks me. That's all I remember of being in the home. And then coming to the new home where I was as a child, just asking, can I go to the toilet? Can I go there? And then I remember them always saying, like, you don't have to ask. Can I get a glass of water? And that, went, that probably went on for a long time. I don't know, but I always remember asking, can I do this and can I do that? And then obviously it went off as the years went on. But Did you ask or have you asked them the question around the fostering? Like, why did they do it? How did it happen? Um, no, but from what I always gathered myself was that my mum today, which was my me, me auntie, she was helping. You know, she didn't want to see her kids or her, her sister's kids stay in foster care or stay in a foster home or go to anybody else. So in her eyes, look, she was helping her sister out, you know, and she was taking the kids taking the kids excuse me um but yeah like so it was just always known that she had a lot on and she couldn't look after us and mm. that was just that you know it was never really sort of there was never really many questions asked growing up i think any questions i did ask i was always given a short answer mm. you know whether it was to protect me which i'm sure that's the, mm-hmm. that's the main reason you know um like i only actually only recently it's funny only recently within the last six months a name got mentioned to me about who do you reckon my dad is you know and even then i was like don't know how i feel about that Mm. like i'm 34 years old and only now a name has crossed Mm. and i'm thinking why wasn't i told that maybe at 18 you know maybe then i probably could have well i'm sure it was all just to protect me um you and I never ask questions. Yeah, you know the way you said at the start is that you don't want to know who he is. Mm. Do you do? A part of me turns and says, nah, look, what's it, what's it, you know? But then there is a part of me, I'm not going to lie, there is a part of me that would say, well, geez, imagine if he's still there, like, you know? Imagine, imagine if he was looking for me, mm. you know? Um, I know there is people out there that probably listen and say, like, I'd love to know, mm. you know, um, I just don't know how I'd feel. I don't know what it'd do to me. I don't know what I'd be expecting to get from it, you know. Um, because growing up as a young adult, I've always thought of the man that's in my life now and has done everything for me as a father. That is my father, you know. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's raised me up. He's done everything. He's taught me right from wrong. Um, Would you be afraid to hurt him or would you be afraid of your dad not wanting to know your your biological father not wanting to know maybe there is a rejection there 
that I probably wouldn't like, you know. I imagine that something came about and I did approach this man and he's all set up and he just disregarded me, you know, because that was something that later in life I sort of said to myself, you know, I feel a lot of pushed away, you know, and I don't want to be pushed away again. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. I don't want to feel that, what I felt as a child, you know. Um, because growing up, I did often say, why did me ma? Like, why did she, why was she able to look after the other kids? You know, why did she have more kids and able to look after them? Why was she not able to look after me? That question crossed my mind, but then I always just say, things happen, and sometimes it just happen for no reason, you just have to go with it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I suppose there is something there. And do you then think that in the life that you had then, because we move on to that, that then you were getting everything you wanted, you were getting all that love, getting all that attention, but then somewhere in that, things shifted for you? Yeah, but I think, it's, I've, me personally, I think I might have brought it all on myself. That's what I say. I say, because I was loved, you know, I just mm. didn't grasp it. I just didn't take it in, you know. I didn't, I always thought it was the black sheep and there was something different about me. Because the rejection. Yeah. of your mother you then brought that on yourself because you thought well hang on I'm going to fuck up here before they fuck me up yeah yeah do you know what I mean mm, yeah no, possibly yeah, I, I no, don't know no look mm. I mean, it's, it's an absolute possibility like people were giving me everything giving me everything and I was doing self-sabotaging mm. you know as they say um, because I didn't want to fail that in case of rejection in case of all these other things that were going on subconsciously in my mind mm. Um which is very natural for a young child of that age being put away. Mm. It's it's fucking horrific. Yeah, yeah. And I would have carried that going on, I suppose. You know, I've, I didn't really, as I grew on in teenage years, I didn't really care for much, you know. I was always very laid back, but I didn't really, didn't really care about anyone who was giving me all this love, you know. It could have happened and it wouldn't have batted an eyelid, you know. Whereas if any other child, they would have been upset about things, but it was almost like I just emotionally wasn't there, you know. Mm. So as I went on, I suppose, carried the chip on my shoulder growing up. Um, had a had a good childhood, you know, other than that. like, But I always just carried the chip on my shoulder. Felt a little bit different. How many in the house? Seven. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. so like I... You know, it was, a, it was a busy old house, you know, there was always something going on. It wasn't like I was left alone. Mm. Um, it was a busy old house, so two brothers, four sisters, you know, and one of those sisters was my real biological sister. Mm. Um, but look, had some good memories, you know, it was, it was a great bit of crack growing up, but it was just me, something, there was always something there, and I suppose like a void or something, you know, and I wanted a field. And I remember I was wanting to do something more. I, th- I guess it was acceptance as well. As I got older, you know, I wanted acceptance. And that's where I think maybe from being rejected, I had to put on these masks. and I had to play this part. And if you don't like me, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. I'm going to tell you everything to like me. You know, if you tell me you play tennis and I don't play tennis, I absolutely love tennis, you know. Mm. People pleasing. Absolutely, people pleasing. I had a mask for every person. For everywhere I went, I had a mask. I was the class clown, you know, in school. 
it was always brutal in school. But I loved making people laugh. You know, I loved getting up to stuff. I was never a bad kid. Mm-hmm. But because I made people laugh, they accepted me then. You know, I was in their circle, even with teachers. I remember something stood out to me in school as well. <clears throat> she was me a teacher. I said to me, uh, in front of the whole class, oh, Danny, you're brilliant. You know, you're really, really good to have around. You make us all laugh. But you can't know her. That's exactly what she said to me. And sticks to me all the time. I just kept thinking about the teacher. I said, but he said, I'm like, she's right, you know, that's what I always said. And she's right, yeah. But growing up, I was like, so what? People are like me, you know? I'll make mm. people laugh. I'll do this and I'll do that. They'll accept me. You know, no, that teacher wasn't that right, though, don't you? No, I know that, yeah. Like, obviously, mm. later now, I, mm. I say to myself, man, if you ever did see that teacher, I'd say, look, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, mm. fucking age, you yeah. know? We would just say that to a kid. Mm. But, um, yeah, I wanted to be accepted by everybody. Teenage years, going to the young adults then, like, I wanted to walk in the pub, you know, I always wanted to uh, provide. I remember I got my first job as uh, collecting milk money. Oh, man, I felt great doing that. Mm. Used to get driven around by uh, a dude who worked for Premier Dairies, and he'd give you the slips, you know, he'd knock at the door. And I thought it was, I thought it was like, the best, you know, I'm knocking at the door, and I'm, how are you today? Mm. There's a little money slip, and they'd give me the money, they'd give me a little tip, and I'm, so I was great talking with people, you know, and chatting, and loved all that interaction. Um, loved meeting new people, because in my eyes, it was like, right, these people are going to like me. I'm going to make them like me. I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to have the little blade and the, the little act. But uh, that was great. So I'd done that for a while, you know, as a young kid, had the little bit of pocket money every week and good up to usual stuff for kids to do. It was never really majorly bad. One or two little run-ins with the guards and stuff from the area, just JLOs. And I got my first job then as working in a pub. Um, the Cardiff Inn at the time great old spot mad shop mad shop (laughs) and at the time the Westies and stuff would have been rampant you know so I think I started walking there probably 14, 15 and I was walking in I was like what is this place but I loved it because it was the madness you know I loved all the parts of the madness and I remember I was walking there in a couple of weeks and certain individual got shot and killed down dead you know and I wasn't scared, it was nothing, it was like, I was drawn to it, you know, it was, it was something that I wanted to see, it was something that I wanted to be around, and I think for any adult to see a kid there, they would have pulled the kid away from that job and said, no, look, there's no way of walking there, but whatever I said, and whatever I didn't say, I suppose, was able to stay there. So as life went on, I started drinking a little bit early, earlier than most, like drinking more, than most uh, young teenagers of that age. So obviously I was staying back late and stuff and was drinking on school nights. I had to walk, I was having a couple of points. The barman didn't care, you know, we'd be sitting there having afters and stuff. I loved it. And then I walked in a nightclub as well as walking in the Cardiff and I walked in heaven. It was actually called West at the time. I walked there and in my eyes I was thinking, yes, we have two jobs now, you know. Mm. Two jobs, I'm great, I'm providing. Love the whole thought of having money. And uh, then the third job came around. And I walked three jobs, and I think it was only about, what, 16, 17, and I had three jobs. I walked in Pizza Hut up in the shopping centre, West Nightclub, and the Cardiff Inn all at the same time. And I loved it, because I was around all these people. I was able to do whatever I wanted. I was able to, you know, and I was almost like, my mother 
would say to me, he's, you know, he's providing, he's working, and I obviously wasn't telling her the full stories, you mm. know, of all that, going back to the after parties and seeing this and seeing that and seeing everything I was seeing. I wasn't telling her anything because I knew it would have stopped me. So I was telling her what I needed to tell her, you know, and I think at the time I was probably, she wouldn't have asked for it, but I think I was even saying, hey, do you want a little wage and mm. stuff, you know? Mm. So then <coughs> I had got with me partner. I was with my partner, so I'm with my partner since I'm 16 years old. Um, an amazing person. And we grew up, we had a good, you know, we had a great relationship, but she obviously done her own thing and I was doing my own thing, partying and stuff. But as we went on in years, she could see that we had a bit of a problem, you know. I'd love to drink, you know, I'd love to party. Um, and she could see this. And I remember I tried my first line of cocaine probably 17 maybe probably actually it was younger probably 16 and I went back to a party and there was a lot of adults around there and I would have been one of the younger people there and we were in the party and nobody looked at me as a child because I never went on as a child you know and so you had these big jobs exactly somebody mm. could have been there around me and they could have been talking about something and whereas if any other child they would have acted stupid but I knew mm. stay cool you know stay cool I listen to a lot of good stuff here stay cool and act cool and they'll keep you around so remember somebody said to me, oh, do you want a bit of coke? And I was like, yeah, no bother. Took the coke. Crazy how it made me feel, you know. I've probably felt part of women this bleeding. I'm with these people, you know. I'm a part of now, you know. I'm an adult. I wasn't an adult, I was bleeding. There was a kid here who was trying something and give me this armour that I needed, you know. That, wasn't, that wouldn't have been the first time I tried drugs. I would have tried drugs. This is a funny story. And my partner to this day, she always... She's like, oh, I didn't rat you out. Mm. I think I was, I was 12. And a friend of mine says, oh, look at him after taking on my brother. He had robbed him. I don't know if you remember, like, how hash used to be. He used to be in, like, a little block. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think at the time it was, like, a quarter of hash. And he pulled it out of his blade and brother's jeans. And he come down. He's looking at this. And we had no, we had no idea what they even do. Mm. We knew that you smoked it somehow. So we put a bit of it into a, into a cigarette paper and stuff. And... Me being me, wanting to show off. I remember going around to the lane when Nicola was there. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm having it in my pocket. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. And me being 12, what you mean? Acting mm. hard, you know? She had told me sister. My sister told me ma. I was bleeding. It was grounded for months. Battered. <laughs> oh. And I remember, do you know what I'd done as a kid? I don't mm. know. I just thought, how am I going to get out of this? So I remember after, after I grounded me, I went in and... Did you ever see in the house years ago, there was always that big, huge wash basket full of socks that needed to be matched, you know? I flipped the wash basket up, started matching the socks, thinking, if I do all this, shit, let me away, you know what I mean? Nothing like that. I was walking upstairs and such a clatter I got across the back. <laughs> but yeah, I was grounded for months, well, probably only two weeks, but I felt like months mm. as a kid. So that would have been a sort of my forced interaction with drugs, but cocaine would have been the thing that I really latched onto and partying. And I remember I was... We're probably about 20 years old now at this point and I was expecting myself and Nicola we were expecting our first child you know and it was a scary moment I was like Jesus what are we going to do and I remember having to tell Nicola's parents and I remember sitting in the sitting room I was playing shit and, and Nicola had already told them and they just looked across and they're like what are you going to do and you know just that fear but look they helped us and you know they obviously told us you need to do what's right now. And so he's thought, right, I'm going to get a good job. At this point, I had left school and I was working as a cabinet maker. Mm. Um, 
I picked up a job of a local fellow working as a cabinet maker and I thought, right, this is it, cabinet maker, this is my career now, this is what I'm going to do. And it was great, I, I loved it, I was working for you for, for a while. And when I was 20, I remember I went to collect my wage slip and he said to me, yeah, I no longer require your services. And I looked at him and was like, what did he even just say? Like, what does he mean by that? And he's like, look, I'm letting you go. And I'm thinking, why? Like, why would you do this? And obviously, he had to for whatever reason. But I was thinking, shit, like, I'm blind. I'm a child on the way here. Like, and my whole thing in life was always to want to provide. Mm. So I wanted to say, I need to get money. I could have picked up another job. But me, my mind didn't go to that. My mind sort of went to, like, fire a flight, you know? Being from where I was from, I knew drugs was a quick and easy way to make money. So I started selling drugs um, to make money. Um, so I had my 24th birthday, had it all, and myself and Nicola talked about everything, and she obviously disagreed, and I spoke whatever way I had to speak, and told her whatever I had to tell her, and for her to agree, and I obviously manipulated her and told her, but started selling drugs. Um, Did you realise in the moment that you're a manipulator, or were you... No, at the moment, no. I would have just thought, I wouldn't have said to myself, well, look, I probably would have said, this is what I need to do. Need to get around her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and her being where she was at, probably just said, like, Ari, you know, but it's not going to last. Like, you have to pick up a job. And, mm. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, what I, that's what I do, that's what I do. As time went on, then, she was me, we had a. We had our first child, uh, Alex, and she was born in 2010. And at this point, I was selling drugs, I was selling crack cocaine. Um, and I wouldn't have been selling it at a low level either. But Is crack cocaine a big problem? It's an absolute, it's, it's really, really, really getting worse and worse and worse. Um, people think cocaine is a social drug and crack cocaine isn't. The only the two of them are the exact same. The only difference is how they're administered. There's this stigma that if you do cocaine you're killed and oh yeah, you have the great life and that. But the person that's smoking crack cocaine in the bedroom, the exact same person as the person who's sniffing cocaine in front of all his friends. There's no difference. It's only how they're administered. That's all it is, you know. There is potent and one thing is gonna lead to do that and it will ruin families, it will destroy lives, it's it's going to get worse. And I mean that it really is. You can see it day in, day out. You hear the young people now who you never even think. It's just like, really? You hear it about and you're thinking, Jesus, no way. You know, and you're thinking, fuck, I'd love to blade and try and give their head a shake, but it's where they're at, you know what I mean? And some people are on a journey and you have to find out for themselves. You can say a lot to people and something might just click with them and something might not. And it might be just a year or two before it clicks with them, you know? But it's really bad, really, really bad. You've explained it really well, though, because I actually wouldn't have known. Like, I know crack kind of heard that kind of mm. word, do you know what I mean? But I would have thought, like, stupid, I mean, I've said this before, like, I would have thought that's an American problem. Yeah. There's a stigma around it, you know? People think, oh, crack, jeez, no, that's the scumbag, that's the real dirty, that's the homeless people sitting in the corner, that's the, the big word, the junkies, you know? Mm. Now, look... You're just a little bit different how you go about it, you know. You wear your fancy clothes and you go into a cubicle in a pub and you stick it up your nose. But the person that's out on the street hiding in the corner smoking it, 
just the administer differently, just take it differently, you know. Has the same effect, gives you the same buzz. Crack cocaine is a little bit stronger, you know. But the both of them, they do the same thing, you know. Cocaine, crack cocaine, that's how it's that's all. Um So you were dealing it at this point, were you? Yeah, so we were dealing it. I was dealing at this point, um, crack cocaine and things were going okay. When I say okay, there was money there, like, you know. Didn't really have to worry. Were you ever taking it? No, no, no. Um, I would have socialised um, and would have done cocaine myself. Never to the point of where I thought it was a problem. I would have done it socially. Um, went out partying and stuff. Probably, you know, Sunday or Friday going into the Saturday maximum. You know, never really anything too serious. Mm. Um, and I got a phone call when I was over at my parents' house. Um, oh, well, actually, Nicola that rang. Was it Nicola that rang me? Yeah. And the Blanchetown Garda Station and Cabra Garda Station had gained access into the apartment that we were living in. And they said, look, I think you need to come home. And the blood drained from my face. Like, I think I remember walking out of the room because I was in my mother's and I walked in the room because I didn't want anybody to hear the phone call. I didn't want to see my reaction either, you know. Um, and I was just so scared. And I remember driving back across with Nicola and I said to Nicola, look, you don't know anything. Now, obviously, she knew a little bit what was going on. Like, of course she did. But I said to her... Shouldn't know the ins and outs of it. Yeah. Nothing like that. I said, look, you ne- you don't know anything. Mm. I said, like, what, like, what, like, how bad is this? And I said, look, you just don't know anything. So when I went into the apartment, obviously when I was driving around, I seen all the detective cars and the guard cars and I was looking up in the balconies around the apartments and all the neighbours and all I was there. And I was like, shit, like... i never done that around the area because I didn't want people to know what I was doing because, like, that crack at that time, I thought was like the the dirty, the stigma around mm. it. So <clears throat> when I went in, all the guards were there and the first guard that came to me as I went through the door, I just said, look, she's coming in. She knows nothing about this. I'd like to, if we can't keep it that way, and fair play to him. He said, no problem. Well, down to the back room of the apartment. Now at the time, I had like a bag full of all laptops and, you know, like stolen stuff. And he obviously kept that aside, but... He got straight to the point. There was a safe. I had a safe. And there was 59 quarters of crack cocaine and an ounce of heroin in it. And he said to me, right, explain. And I said, what's that explain? He said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, we weren't expecting this, you know. And they always say, I wasn't expecting use, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, look, we have a warrant here. And on the warrant it says that you sold a little bit of weed. And he pulled me down and he said to me, look, you help us out, we'll help you out, you know. This is, somebody told us that you are selling weed to get pressure off them. And I said, nah, look. If somebody done that, that's their problem, you know. That's, they have to live with that. I said, but I'm not doing it. No what way. was the street value on that? Um, 36,000. Wow. Yeah, 36,000. Um, I remember I was just thinking, it was all like, is this actually happening? You know, that way. Now, when the guys had said to me there, they had obviously said, look, okay, we're arresting you and this and that. And I said, okay. Now, I didn't say anything else then. And I walked through the room and they had walked ahead of me and they had obviously put everything in bags and they had said to Nicola, Nicola was there. She was upset and they said, look, it's okay. We're only doing them on stolen goods. Fair play to him. He didn't have to do it, you know, but like, it's just, he was, because obviously I had said to him, look, I don't want her to know anything. So he said, look, I'm just doing them on stolen goods. Down to the guard station, um, went in on the section, asked me all the questions. 
arrested me, gave me the charges. I was charged with a 15A drugs charge. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was very oblivious to how much trouble I was in. And it was only afterwards where I was speaking to a couple of people and like, Jesus, yeah, like, you know, like, you're, you're looking at time. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, then it sort of dawned on me, holy shit, like, yeah. Found out, like, a 15A charge carries a mandatory 10-year sentence, prison sentence. And my head, I was just like, whoa, you know, what the hell? When did you find out this? Like, when did you find out? Did they let you go after that? Yeah, so they let me go. So they charged me and they had given me my charge sheets. And I was up then. I was going to be up in court then again, obviously, as it goes, you know. But I found out afterwards, obviously, I'd spoke to one or two people and told them what's happened. And Mm. they were sort of saying, like, yeah, you know, you're looking at a bit of time. And then I was like, what what do you mean? And I went to my solicitor and stuff then and told them what happened. And they said, okay, so... You're definitely going to do jail here. But in my head, I was just, it was almost like, ah, I won't, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't see myself doing jail, you know. I'm not the person that goes to jail. It's not me. Um, How old was Alex when this was happening? Alex was probably two. Was she two? Yeah, probably two. Well, well, she was two when I went to prison. So I went to prison in 2012. So she was probably one of the bit when I got caught. Because what I'd done... When I got caught, I had said, Roy, I've known a lot of people in the year to drag it out for years. You know, these cases, like, they drag it out and drag it out and just prolong it and prolong it. And I said to myself, Roy, there's no denying I'm going to do jail. Do we drag it out and just prolong it and wait till Alex is older and wait till Nicholas more and involved with Alex and then I have to just leave and... Or do we just get it over and done with? So I said to my solicitor, I said, look... I don't want to waste anybody's time here. I want this over and done with. I think within the space of six months, it was, it was up in front of the court, ready to be sentenced. And it stood to me. Um, Did you have there. a conversation with Nicola? Like, are you having that conversation? No. With someone saying to you, you're looking at 10 years. Are you bringing that back no, to Nicola and no, going? No. So that's one thing I didn't do because I wanted, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt Nicola. I didn't want to upset Nicola. I didn't want, my actual hair is on fire. So, my mother and father and my whole family, I didn't tell anybody. So the only person that knew I was in court was Nicola and a couple of others. Um, and what, like even me and Nicola were driving into the courthouse and I remember we were talking about where we were going to go for breakfast afterwards. That's how much I was thinking I'll get a suspended sentence. Because I've heard of people getting done for a lot more than me um, and getting suspended sentences. You know, so I'm thinking, look, that's my first charge. I've never been in trouble with the law. I've never this. So we'll get a suspended sentence, you know. Nicola, yeah, we'll go for breakfast here. We'll do this and... I remember giving Alex, Alex a hug before I went into the court and giving her a hug and a little kiss and I got almost like this sensation, Jesus Christ, and you might actually not see her later on. You know what I like? But then driving into the car, I was like, yeah, you know, we'll go for breakfast, it'll be all right. And I remember being in the courtroom and I remember standing up in front of the judge and he was reading out everything and was looking across the cars out at Nicola and Nicola was, she was, she Balling, balling. And I was just standing there and waiting and waiting and waiting. And he was like, look, it was a substantial find. This carries a 10-year mandatory sentence. And as he's talking, I'm thinking, okay, okay, you know, come on, what's next, what's next? And I remember him saying to me, yeah, I'm not going to give you 10 years. But if we didn't catch you, you could be a big major player in the drug trade. So um, you didn't waste anybody's time also. You got it over and done with it. And, but I still do have to impose a sentence and 
He says, I'm going to give you four years. And I remember I heard of four years. I'm just thinking, I'm not going for breakfast. And looking across at Nicola, and she was unconsolable. Now, I couldn't go to her. I was behind the dock. And I remember the, the, the officer that walks in the, co- in the court coming over to me and putting cuffs on me and walking me down to the uh, holding cell. And I was just like, shocked, you know. What the fuck is after happening? How is this after happening? And obviously just seeing Nicola and wanting to go to Nicola to help Nicola and I couldn't. And as I was walking down, so in the holding cell, your 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 barrister and your sister's allowed to come to you, you know. And I went to my barrister and says, Look, just ring me mother and father and tell them what's after happening. Because they had no idea. They didn't know I was involved in drugs, they didn't know that I was up on a 15 day charge, they didn't know that I'm just had to be sentenced to four years in prison. Because I didn't want them. I didn't want to hurt them, I didn't want to and the whole thing about not wanting to hurt them was one thing, but I guess I didn't want to be rejected by them as well for being a drug dealer, you know, and bringing shame to the family. You know, I didn't want that either. So I let the solicitor do it. I said, look, ring them and tell them that I'm out getting four years. Um, and I remember sitting there in the holding cell and there was a fella next to me. And obviously this was, was walking the park to him, but I was, I was, I was in shock. And was, was it naivety or was it a chip on your shoulder? Probably a chip on the shoulder, you know, that I've carried for so long. Um, definitely could have been that early. And I remember sitting there in the holding cell and I looked at a fella, you know, and he was like, what did you get? You know, it was like, four years, you know, and I sort of let a little giggle because I was still in shock. And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I just got seven myself. And I'm like, seven years, you know. But he, he then, this dude then spoke to me. So I'm thinking four years and I'm counting 2012, 2015, 2016. And he's, this dude then let me in on a little something that I didn't know. So for every prison year, it's nine months only. Okay. So there's a thing called remission. So for every prison year, you get three months off. Right. I didn't know this, you know. Mm. So then I thought, oh, so I'm only doing three years, you know. I thought, really, three years. Still wasn't any help, but I was thinking that it was like three years, really three years, 2015. So got brought into Mount Joy, into the, as they call it, the dog box, you know, where they transport the prisoners from the court to the Mount Joy. And I remember pulling up to the gates, the gates of Mount Joy and just thinking, what is going on? Like, really, somebody needs to just come out. I, I kept thinking, me barrister that was going to make a call, or you know, one of the prison officers going to knock at the window and say, "Look, you're actually, you're actually going back. There's been an error or something like that." But it never came about, you know. And walked into the Mount Joy prison and been told to strip there in front of a couple of men who obviously walked there, you know. And you know, the whole out of movie thing. I'm like, this isn't sort of how we really wanted to fail. This is. I didn't. I never thought I was going to fail like this. So stripping there in front of men and the whole thing and asking you to squat and spread your cheeks and sit on that there, you know, to make sure that you've nothing up inside you that you're bringing Did in. Did that humble you? Humbled me. At the moment, it didn't humble me as such, but it, uh, uh, it gave me a kick of reality, you know. The door closing behind me, the whole grey look, the whole outdated, you know, the walls, the, even the prison uniforms, everything was real outdated and I thought, right, Holy shit, I'm like actually in Mount Joy. I'm down here in the reception where prisoners come. I've never heard of this place. You know, you hear of prison cells, but you don't hear of the ins and outs and what goes on. And got me picture taken and got handed a card with a prison number on it. 
And that's all it was. That was it. You're a prison number. You don't go by Danny. You don't go by this. They they know you as your prison number. And uh, got handed a set of clothes that I had to wear. A red jumper, a red shirt and a pair of jeans. And a pair of pumps. But they put me into a cell and there was no telly in the cell. And I remember sitting on the side of the bed and I cried like a baby. Absolutely cried like a baby. Just thinking that I wasn't going to see me daughter I wasn't going to see Nicola how much of the guilt and the shame and people were going to know me for who I was and people were going to say that fucking scumbag that this that that and the whole fear of people rejecting me and all of this stuff that came flooding you know was there fear a lot of fear a lot of fear of the unknown a fear of what am I going to do here now like I'm here what's going to happen to me here like you hear stories but you just don't know when you're in that situation. You just you don't know what the hell is going to happen. And I remember sitting there and crying and went to bed that night and woke up the next morning thinking, okay, so I'm here, you know. I sort of had a different set with myself and I sort of said, right, this is it. You need it. You need to sort of face reality what's happening here. And Took a couple of deep breaths, looked out at the little little hatch in the window, you know, looked out at the sky and I thought, nothing I can do. I'm here. No matter how much I cry about this, no matter how much I whinge about this, no matter how much I kick and scream to the prison officers, I am not getting out of here. So I have to do what is best for me. So I said to myself, right, I'm three years here. Three years, that's it. I've came to terms with that. I'm going to stay here for three years. I then had to come to terms with, who am I in here? You know? That and the whole thing of the old Shawshank Redemption movie comes back to me, you know? Am I going to be the old Andy Dufresne? Or am I going to be Red, who, you know, who can wheel and deal? Am I going to be the people-pleasing person? Or am I going to be the scared 12-year-old boy who I keep bringing it back to? That's who I was. Um... I wasn't the person with the chip on my shoulder, you know, I wasn't this person who, I wasn't going to put on any masks, you know. So for two days they kept me down there. For what reason, I don't know. Maybe it's a thing that they do to keep somebody there to sort of come to terms. But I remember knocking on the door and saying to the prison officers, look, am I going to go up onto the land and where the rest of the, the rest of the population is or what's going to happen? And he said, yeah, you need to speak to the governor first. That's okay. So I went to speak to the governor and the governor called me in and sent me down. He said, Roy, you're here. Are you affiliated to any gangs? I was like, affiliated to any gangs? What do you mean? Like, I was like, no. He's like, are you in trouble with anybody? I was like, no. He says, a drug charge. He says, do you owe, any, do you owe anybody money in here? And he's asking me all these questions and I'm sort of baffled by them at the same point. At the same point. Like, Why is he asking me these questions? And he said, this is a very dangerous place. He said, uh, if you're not telling me the truth, he says, don't worry, it'll be found out up there. I thought, right, you know, but I am telling them the truth. Could so you got, imagine the young guys that are going into prison own money to people of stuff like, I'm from Mofio, and I know all, all of that kind of stuff that goes on, and, you know, young fellas have been found with, with drugs and mm. ended up in prison, and their mass having to pay the bill. Yeah. Because they're going into prison where they own money. Yeah. And they're going to be battered or they're going to be whatever. 
and they're like, Ma, you need to go on to the credit union, you need to get that 10 grand, you need to pay it. Yeah, it puts so much pressure on families. But you hear of so many people in there. While I was in there, I heard of so many people just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and just made the wrong decision. You know, some really nice people in there. Um, but after the governor spoke to me that day, I said to myself, why is he asking me these questions? And I said to myself, because it is a fucking dangerous place, you know? And I sort of made me say to myself, okay, Danny, you're not this hard, man. You're not this person. You need to really just be yourself. So we did. And I remember walking up and that's the old song, the old triangle, you know? I remember looking through in the centre of the circle and seeing the old triangle and I thought, Jesus, there it is. And I walked up onto D1, which is the landing. And I looked down the landing and they're all there, you know? All the population and they're all looking at you because you're dressed in the red and the jeans. You're really marked as a newbie. Whereas if the rest of the population, they're all in there, they're established, they have their own clothes and stuff, you know? Luckily... When I went in and I looked down the land and I seen one person who I knew and he called me over and he said, look, everything all right? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know. He said, oh, come on, I'll get you some clothes. And he gave me some clothes and stuff and he gave me the little bit of a, the, the lowdown, you know, the crash, the crash course. Like, <laughs> look, what to do and what not to do. And I helped and I then met one or two other people who was from the area. I didn't know them too well. But I would have known people who they knew. And that was all right, you know. That sort of helped you in there, you know. Mm. And they almost, like, took me under their wing. And as time went on, you see a lot, a lot of crazy, crazy stuff in there. Like, I remember the first day I was in there, a fella, they give, the, they give you these jokes. It's about the same size as that candle holder there. And uh, the plastic... A fella walked over to another fella and it was full of scalding water. I turned it over him and I had a handle on it that wouldn't break. So these lads are holding this and the noise of the jug hitting his head eh, sticks with me now. It's just that noise of dung, dung and blood everywhere. And the guards didn't rush, but they almost said, ah, oh, again, I'm walked down and stopped, you know, but everybody sort of went around and seen what was happening. The boys thinking, Jesus, you know. Never seen that before. That happened on the daily, you know? Things like that happen on the daily. You hear it and you see it. It's, it's crazy. You see beatings, um, people getting cut up. Um, there was another time I was in there and I was walking along in my landing, going back to my cell and the person in front of me, I'd say he was about two feet in front of me when we were walking back. And I'm looking down, just looking at the cage as I'm walking and I just seen blood everywhere. I looked up and before I knew it, your man didn't even know what happened. And his whole face was cut to pieces. He was obviously walking by a cell door. And somebody was so quick that I didn't, I didn't even see the person do it. But his face just opened, flapped. And I was just like, what the hell? But I didn't want to look so scared, you know that way? Because mm. I didn't want to show any weakness, you know? But I also wasn't a hard man. But I was just making sure to say, right, let's not... But one of the lads was there, he said, Danny, you want to see the, want to see the blood drain from your face? And I was thinking, oh, really, yeah? Jesus Christ, you know? But I think what gave me a real uh, a real kick of reality as well was, you know, the whole slopping in and slopping out. <laughs> so when I, when I went up, it was one of the first nights, when I went up onto the landing, uh, I got put into a cell with another individual. 
still don't remember his name. He's a really nice guy, you know. But obviously he was a heroin addict. Um, and he'd done his own things and whatever it was, that was his stuff, you know. And he told me that when I went in, you know. He said, look, this is what I do. This, this, this. And I said, okay. And he asked me, do you do that? Do you want a bit? And this and that. And I was like, no, no. So he was... He was nice, you know. He told me the rules of the cell and what what to do and what not to do. And it's grand. But he didn't tell me that. When the cell door closes at 7 o'clock, you can't go to the toilet anymore. <laughs> you know. So I remember the door closed, the cell door closed. And I was on the top bunk, you know. And I said, Jesus Christ. It's an idiot. It was the bathroom. And he said to me, did you not go? I'm bleeding court at 7. I said, no. I says, what do I do? Do I knock on the door or something? And he, he giggled to himself. He says, no. He says, there in the corner. I said, what? You know, you have plastic bins. So that's what it was. You know, you have plastic bins. You're staring in the corner. He says, there, there's a bottle of Dettol. Spray it after you. I was thinking, what? And he's on the bunk bed watching it. I think at the time it was the, the Euros or the World Cup. You're watching the football, you know. There he is, playing, chatting away to me, watching Portugal or something to tell you. And I'm squatting in the corner, you know, with a bleeding bottle of bleeding Dettol in my pocket, in my hand, you know. And I was thinking, this is crazy, you know. But he was all right about it. Like, he was grand. Mm. But it was, it was definitely a lesson learned, you know, to go to the bathroom before the door closes. Um, but within a couple of months then, we had, uh, with me being drug-free in there, they give you the, it's like an incentive to do, you know, if you're drug-free, we'll move you onto a drug-free landing and give you your own cell. And at this time then, they changed that you're in the process of changing all the cells. And you're putting toilets in the cells, and there were single cells as well. So we had obviously went to the governor and explained to him, Excuse me, that I was drug free and I'd like to put my name forward for one of the new cells. And long and behold, I got one. I remember walking around and opening the cell door and seeing this lovely white porcelain bowl there. And I thought, yes, you know, <laughs> happy days. And so, can you just go and ask that? Or do you like the stupid question, right? You know, where they're like, there's a hierarchy in the yeah. prison. So do you have to go to someone else? Yeah. And asked him, can you go to the governor to yeah, ask for that Yeah, cell? yeah, So you'd have to go to your officer that's on the land and then mm. you'd have to get past your uh, CCO. Mm. Um, uh, and then, like, so you're the officer that's over the land or whatever like that. And you'd go to them, look, but you say, look, I want to see the governor in the morning. You go into the governor in that morning, there'll be a queue of people going to see the governor, you know. Some mm. people are just there to give out about something. Some people are there to ask for something. Some people are there to cry you know whatever it might be to try and make things easy that's what they do um you write a sheet as well it's you write a half sheet um you write oi daniel such and such would request and you give it in and yes no um but i remember getting the cell and i thought jesus yeah this is great now so i could do what i want in the cell you know i'd put me posters up and i'd put me little pictures up that nicola was giving me and i remember my first visit as well with nicola and our kids, she broke down, you know, she, she cried and I didn't want to cry. I didn't cry, but I wanted to sound much, but I knew if I cried, it hurt her more, you know, and she was like, are you okay, is this, and asking a million of questions, and I was like, yeah, I'm fine, you know, I'm good, I'm okay. And I remember our father, he was, he's such an amazing, amazing person. He's passed away now, but I remember him saying to me, like, you fucking idiot, why didn't you tell me, I would have took the rap you. That's how much of a, a good person he was, you know. Mm. He was willing to take the rap for me. And I was like, ah, oh, no, I just didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to blame anybody. Like, he didn't even know, you know. And we would have been really, really close. Like, would have told him everything, you know. But I just, I think I suppose as well, I thought he would have rejected me because it was crack cocaine, you know. Mm. In all of this, right, are you like, I have 
let Alex down. I've let Nicola down. I've I've let my solicitor, my barrister, ring me man down. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I didn't want to. At the time, I remember thinking to myself, "I'm everything that I don't want people to see me as. I'm, I'm the scumbag. I'm the doorboard." Did you think? Did you? Did you? Because right, let's just cut. Did you know you were a scumbag, or were you like, "This is easy breezy. Three years, I'm going to get it done." In Do my eyes, I, mean? I thought. No, I'm not saying you're a scumbag. Do you yeah, know no, what I know that. Yeah, yeah, no. In, mm. But in, in my eyes, I didn't, in my eyes, I was thinking, to myself, yeah, Danny, you're a fucking scumbag for doing this. Absolutely, you know. Your daughter's out there now. Nicola's out there. She's going to have to survive. And the whole thing of providing and stuff, you know what I mean? She's struggling now at home on her own, you know. And I'm after doing all this. There was so much guilt. So much guilt. But. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Did I deal with it? No. I wouldn't imagine I dealt with it well and day, you know. I didn't want to deal with emotions, you know. I didn't want to be upset. Um, I've done a lot of writing in there, um, you know, at night time and stuff, because there's not a whole lot to do. Um, 
getting CDs and stuff dropped up to me, you know, and, but Nicola actually only found one of the little books that I wrote in. I remember walking into the bedroom there only a couple of months back and she was crying in the bedroom, you know, asking me to read one of them, a little piece, and, and we just, I didn't really say that because, you know, maybe it's something I don't want to really have a look at because whatever I was writing, it was making her sad, you know. Um, so I do a lot of writing in the evenings, right how I was feeling, right how I was sorry, you know. I used to pray a lot. When I was in there, I pray and I guess maybe please let me out here, you know. Went to church when I was in there. But never went to church, you know, when I was outside, but I was doing everything that I thought was going to help me get out of there. Praying, going to church, telling Nicola that I'm different. I'm not going to be that person. When I leave here, I'm going to do everything in my will to make life better. Towards the end of my sentence then, they, um, they brought me to an open jail, um, Lachlan House, which is a bit more relaxed, you know. You have your own room, you can walk in and out whenever you want and stuff. And I think it was sort of like I became a bit of a trustee in Mount Joy and that sort of helped me get there, you know. I became a cleaner on the land and, and when you're a cleaner on the land and your door gets left open. Whereas if other, all the rest of the doors get closed, so it'd get left open, say, to probably nine o'clock at night rather than seven, you know. So you have that little bit of a uh, relax, you know, and used to mop the land and some stuff and walked in the woodwork shop. I was I kept busy, you know. I'd done whatever it was I'd done. Um, so... It all stood to me and I, was, I happened to get into an open jail for the, for the last of my sentence and Nicola was able to come up and visit and her dad was up and come up and visit and everything was a little bit better and I remember thinking, right, I'm coming towards the end of my sentence now, you know. Things are going to be different and all the promises you made, you're going to stick by them and get out of jail and just everything I'd said and everything I'd told Nicola was, was all a lie. Um, because my old behaviours came out again. When I came out, people wanted to know me, you know. People wanted me to be their friend from the area that I am, you know. It's 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 almost like you have a lot of street credit when you're coming from prison, you know. And that would have been my thing growing up as well, you know. If you hear someone in prison, it's like Jesus, no way, you're saying you're fucking great, you know. Um so I would have started to party a like, lot, you know, go to parties and stuff and Wives. Did it go to your head? Yeah, absolutely. Like ego? 100% ego, yeah. I had this street credit, you know, I had this blade, and yeah, I'm the blade, and I'm a hard man now, you know, I'm the gangster, I'm back the this. In the yeah, club, back, back in the, the nightclub, yeah, absolutely, where you yeah. were. Um, you know, can I ask you something? Yeah. Can I ask you about your mum and dad? Did mm. they go and visit you, and was the first, what was that first visit like? They did go and visit me, um... The first visit, it was it was tough enough for them. For me, I didn't want the visit. I didn't want to see them because of how it made me feel, you know. Um, they they visited a couple of times. They wouldn't have visited a whole lot for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, like you get a phone call, you know, I'd make the odd phone call and stuff. But it was mainly Nicola and her father and stuff who would always come and visit me. The odd time you might get an old friend, you know. Mm. Who did you hurt the most going to prison? Um, Nicola. Yeah, Nicola and Alex and yourself. Absolutely, myself. Yeah, but I never think of that. You know, that's I don't I don't think of myself when I'm doing things. I always think of how I've hurt somebody else and how I've made. It was only Nicola, Nicola and the kids. You know, I didn't. I think as well, my mother and her father. I was like. 
because there was so much guilt and shame, I wanted a blanket out. And I didn't want to feel whatever was making me feel. And so I was like, forget about it, just leave it. And I didn't want to feel it. But when I came to Nicola, I was like, and now I'm after Horner. And I thought about it, and thought about it, you know. Was it, was it because that you, like, that you knew Nicola loved you so much that you knew, like, she was never going to reject you? Do you think, and that with the, yeah. It was almost, I think, it was almost like I felt like I've rejected her. I've rejected her by doing something really, I've left her on her own. Mm. I have left her and Alex on her own. Like you were left exactly. in her own? Exactly, yeah. Mm. Like how I was as a child. And that played on my head so much. Alex is going to get to the point where she's not going to, she's going to ask questions. No, no. Luckily, obviously she was two, she'd come up on a visit, but... I was in college, you know, that's that's where I was, you know. Um, and then obviously when I got to the open prison, it was a little bit more relaxed. I was able to go walks with her and stuff around the prison. Whereas if not Mount Joy, it's like, you know, it's like a screen. Yeah, because we have to say, like, it's not, prison wasn't easy breezy. No, it's, absolutely it, not. Jesus, no, it was, it was far from easy breezy. Like, emotionally and mentally, it was, it was torture, but I didn't want to deal with it. So I just sort of just brushed things off, you know, and I'll be okay, you know. This is okay. It'll be it'll be all alright. You know, the shit I've seen in prison. The people who I spoke, the the stories I've heard, the Do they still sit with you? Absolutely. All the time. Even just as you said that now, I've got shivers all over my body, you know, just sort of just little things. Um What would you say to any parent that is going up to prison to see their son? What's the thing you would say to them? Let them know that things are all right and you're all right. Because I was always worried, but I didn't want to acknowledge it. I didn't want to tell the person, I didn't want to say to the person, are you all right? Because I knew it would have got me upset, you know. Tell the person that they're going to be all right, they are all right, and it'll all be over. Like, obviously, look, I know it's probably hard to say that somebody that they're going up to, somebody who's doing life or doing 15 years or something like that, it is hard, but it's just... Sometimes, as cliche as this might sound, but when you're in a dark place, you sort of have to become the light, you know? Um, and I was in a dark place and I had to sort of just look at things in, in a little bit of a brighter side, you know? Um, so I guess that's what I sort of done. But I didn't really speak about how I was feeling, you know? You couldn't? No, I couldn't because mm. I didn't want to hurt anybody. Um, even with Nicola, like Nicola was hurting so much. I know she was hurting so much, you know. But I didn't really want to be asking her how she was hurting because I didn't want to bring up emotions for her. I didn't want to bring up emotions for me, so. Is it all surface level? Yeah, yeah, mm. you know. I'm not I'm not hitting the stuff that's making me feel sick in my stomach, you know. Mm. Um, but when I get out, I just... I disregarded all the promises. Mm. Tell me about that. Everything. Um, I had this street credit, I had this whole persona, and for the first couple of weeks, Nicola was like, okay, no bother, she wasn't saying that. Mm. Then I got to the point where she's like, right, Danny, you know, you need to relax a little bit. And I'm like, why? I was fucking locked up, you know, leave, leave me be, you know, I'm allowed to do this, fucking leave me be. Fridays became into the Sundays, you know, going out and 
turning off the phone and just not going home. And Nicholas at home with my child. Um, and I'm just playing disregarding everything that she's had down for me, you know. Um, because I have all these so-called fake friends who are fucking give me this big ego, you know, talking all this shit to me. Sitting around tables, slaughtering, out, smoking, fucking sniffing cocaine and talking shit to these people. Swallowing it all. Ah, oh, lapping it up, you know. Mm. And then fucking Monday comes around and I'm going back down with the tail between my legs and I'm, sorry, Nicola, and she's like, you fucking can't be doing this and I'm depressed down my head then, you know. But this went on and on and on. And myself and Nicola then were expecting a second child. And I was still doing it all. And I started to do it more and more frequently. Then I started to do it in secret, you know. Um, I wouldn't be sitting on tables anymore. I was sitting in fields, you know, hiding away from people, not wanting to be around people. Um, what takes you to sit in a fucking field? The drugs. It brings you to a fucking place where you never want to go. Cocaine is supposed to be this fucking, oh, this party drug, this great drug. It's, it's fucking not. It's a bleeding. It's a bag of misery. That's what it is. Um, like, I remember I used to crave cocaine and when I done it, I used to hate it that I'd have to do it. Because I know that I'm going to do it for fucking days and days and end and how it's going to make me fail. I wanted to take myself... When I was out, if I was out and I was going to a party, let's say, people used to say, oh, Danny, you're going wandering. Because that's what I used to do. And I'd say, yeah, I didn't know. They'd say, you're going wandering. Now, these are people that obviously weren't as bad as me, you know. Mm. And I'd go wandering for days. Just walking, walking, walking. Elmy heads, dipping cocaine, bleeding, doing stupid things. Why do you think that? You did the coke then, and you didn't touch out like that in prison. I don't know. Maybe it's because of everything that I suppressed while I was in prison. And when I came out, I just didn't deal with it. And maybe I was trying to deal with it in a different way. And I still didn't actually deal with it as such. Mm. Um, and I was slowly just, you know, it's the old, the old cooking pot, you know. It's, it's eventually going to bleed and blow. Maybe that's what was happening. I know I was starting to spill out and spill out and spill out. Um, and it just got worse and worse. And I remember we had Frankie May. And I was still doing cocaine, dry sniffing, you know, hiding around the house. And Nicola was pleading with me, like, please. What's dry sniffing? Dry sniffing is where you don't even drink. Like, you know, a lot of people would need a drink to do, sn- uh, to do cocaine, like. Mm. Whereas if I was just dry sniffing, I was just bleeding all hours of the day, whenever it was, morning, noon, and night, I was just sniffing. Um, and I was taking me to really bad places, and it was it was getting to the point then where I didn't want to be around Nicholas, because obviously I didn't want to be around anybody, so I'd, I'd go, you know, and she was begging me. I remember at one point, she said, Jesus, if you ever speak to her, she'd tell you. She had to lock me in a room and all, you know. Lock me in a room and played with me, played with me, plays, plays. I was thinking about just drugs. I just wanted to get. I just want if I could just slip through this door, I could just get out of this apartment. I'd be grand, you know, and I'd be back on my own then, and back with my own thoughts and with my own mind, and take me to all them stupid fucking places that I go to. Um, and Nicholas' father, <coughs> like he'd always try and talk sense and be like, "We were really close, you know." He was such a big, big character in Nicholas' life, and 
anytime I'd done something, she'd ring him and he'd he'd try and come and talk to me like. He must have loved you. Ah. He must have loved you to do that. Fuck yeah, he's, he's a fucking great person. Um, but there was there was a lot that he done. He didn't have to, you know. Mm. He fucking didn't have to do it. And he got sick. And I remember <clears throat> at this point, I'd. Is it hard for you to hear people love you? Sometimes, yeah. Mm. Yeah, sometimes. Mm. He'd, uh, he'd got sick, but even though he was sick, he still done everything. You know, he'd still always want to help. Um, Jesus. I always said, I say it now, like, if I could ever be like him, you know. Maybe so you are. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you are. But my addiction got so bad, brought me to a place where I never thought I'd be and I'd isolated myself from everybody and I remember Nicholas said, look Danny, I have to kick it out, you know, I can't, I can't have it around the kids. She needed to protect the kids, she was the mother and in her way she had to protect the kids um, and we'd just done so much shit, you know. That even my own <coughs> mother and father and my own family, they, they all just said, they all sort of said, Roy, you have to take a bleeding step back from me then, you know. <coughs> and in my eyes, I was thinking, the fucking neck of them, you know. That's what I was thinking, the fucking neck of them, you know. So I found myself bleeding. Now at this time, I was holding up a, a decent job. I'd got into the electrical trade and I was walking, but I even had to leave that, you know. I was saying the good wage and I had to leave that because the addiction just got so bad. Brought me to such a low place where I found myself bleeding, living in a car on the streets. And it was at a point where I just thought, how the fuck am I after getting here, you know? How the fuck are you after getting there? Yeah. Considering like what you fuck went through and look yeah. what you... How the fuck did I get there? All the shit that I said and all the promises that I made and just what the fuck am I after doing? Um, and I remember I was <coughs> lying up in the car and it was my 29th birthday and this is something that a lot of people always say well, that's where maybe the penny dropped <coughs> about four in the morning and you know what this just goes to show how much of a good person Nicola is as well for this my birthday she bought me clothes and stuff and you know what I mean she'd met up with me that day and brought me for breakfast and stuff and she tried to make it something special for me. Oh, God. She's a great girl. But that day, lying there, four in the morning, wondering what the fuck am I going to do? Suicide crossed my mind, all these things. I've tried it all, you know, just... What am I going to do? So I knock on the window. And I looked and I seen the guards... And I was parked, where I was parked was in a housing estate in Blanchestown, <coughs> at the back of the housing estate, so I thought, fuck these, we're getting complaints. And I was pissing right now, pissing. I stood out in the guard, those things, you know, took me name, I took me, he's like, what's the situation? And as he's asked me the question, he's looking around, he's looking in the car, and you can see the big huge horse blanket that I used to keep over me, you know. And he's, look, we're getting a couple of complaints, you're going to have to move off. And I looked at him, I said, look, I can't move, guys. 
I said, this is where I'm living. And whatever way his thoughts was, I don't know. He just said, okay, just look after yourself, will you? He could have, we all say, he could have got a truck to come and impound the car. He could have arrested me. He could have said, look, you have to go. He looked at his partner there and he just sort of gave the nod, you know, and drove off and left me be. He said, just look after yourself. And I got into the car and I was lying there and I pulled the blanket over me and I was, look after myself. That's what I, I need to look after myself. How the fuck am I getting here and how am I going to look after myself? My new addiction is what's my main, main problem was. Um, I needed cocaine to function. I needed cocaine to deal with what I was going through. I needed so was, what am I going to do? Um, my sister, my biological sister, she had uh, she had helped me and Nicola had helped me and sort of made contact with killing mine. Um, and I remember when Ring had killed mine, I was almost like, I was still telling myself I didn't have a problem. <laughs> you know, I was still, you know, the next day and stuff, I was like, I don't, I, look, I don't have a problem. Like, I don't have an issue, like, but I'll ring them, you know. Is that the addict's mind that you go so fucking low and then you're like, nah, I'm grand actually. Yeah. Until you hit rock bottom. <clears throat> yeah. So I remember a couple of days afterwards going into Kilmoyne on the bus into, I was going into Lord Edistry for an assessment and I remember when I was going in, I was thinking, I don't even fucking need to go in here. Mm. But if I had a thought of how I was feeling three days prior, I would have said, no, 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 you do need to go in, but as you said, the addict mind plays tricks on you and says, look, you're all right. Give over, you know. You'll be grand in a week. So I went in and as I was going in, I was seeing all these other characters there, you know, all these other individuals and I'm looking at them. And the way I was brought up, I would have looked at these people in a certain way and I would have looked at them differently than the other person. But at that point, I looked at the one person who was staring at and I thought, Jesus Christ, he's rough, you know. And in my head, I'm thinking... I'm coming here for the exact same reason as him. Mm. I, I am the exact same person as him. I am an addict. That's, that was the main thing. I have become the person who, growing up, walking by on the street, and you look at these people, you know, you throw your nose up to, you know, you fucking, you know, Jesus, he's mm. a scumbag, he's a dirt, he's this, he's that, he's not, he's down on his luck. Mm. That's what he is, you know. He's had a bleeding. Whatever decisions he's done in life, he's down on his luck and it's mm. brought him to where he is today. Um, and I looked at that person and I said I'm the same as him I'm no different than him I'm suffering with an addiction I'm suffering with a, a bad mind here that needs to be fixed Was that your light bulb moment? Absolutely yeah um, and I remember when I went in then and the assessment and he's like okay what's your problem and this was the very first time I openly admitted I have an addiction I said to him, um, he said, what's the problem? Uh, we are here, you know. And I said, I'm a, I have an addiction to cocaine. He said, okay, I have an addiction to anything else. And I said, I'll drink. And I said, oh, actually, I have an addiction to anything that will take me away from myself. That's what I said to him. I said, that's what I have. And he said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I just want help. And he said, okay. He said, do you want a day program? Do you want residential? What does he want? And I says, what's residential? And he said, 
Well, Clue Mine offer a residential program where it's, you do six months residential, you do a three month step down period, and then you do following then four months and an aftercare. I thought, okay, so it's a year. So yeah, that's what I want. Because I knew <coughs> something hit with me down. I was like, if I go to a day program, I'll still able to. It means I'm going there during the day, but I'm going back to where I am, wherever I am. I still mm. have no place to live. Um, I says, I'm still going back to that life. Said, my to mind, the care. Yeah, my mind will run with that. Mm. So I um, said to him, I want residential. He said, okay. I said, can I go now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he said, no, it's not that simple. He said, there's a waiting list. In my head, I'm thinking, so fuck, what do I do now? He said, so you do, an, you do a pre-entries. So I want you to come back to us twice a week. I want you to give us clean urines, and I want you to have a little check-in group with us. Tell us how you're feeling. I said, right, no problem. So um, I remember going home then, and I was almost like, I was real happy. You know, I was thinking, yes, I'm good. But then also the little part of my mind said, there, you've done it, you're all right. You don't need to go back now. You've made that step, you know. Just the addict mind will try and trick you. So I rang Nicola and I told Nicola and um, she said, good, you know, I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you're doing it. In my eyes, I'm thinking, right, so come on, take me back, you know. But uh, she wanted to see that I was really, really sticking to her. Yeah. So I'd done a couple of uh, couple of weeks of pre-entries and stuff and Nicola started, you know, have me around the house and let me back into the kids' lives and stuff, which I was thinking. Sort of dawned on me, you know, right, if I do this, things will start coming back, you know? Mm. Right, so just keep it going, keep it going. And at this point, I was going in and out of uh, Lord Edward Street, and Nicholas' dad was uh, sick in hospital in St. James's. And, you know, I'd go into him and I'd visit him. Take your time. And he was proud. <laughs> That's the mirror that you needed. Yeah. You needed to see that. Yeah, he was happy for me, you know. And uh, it was great. So all was going good and a couple of months here passed. And Nicola was distraught, you know, she'd lost her best friend. Take your time, take a glass of water. To me, he was he was a role model that I always wanted to be. And I remember when he was, when we were told he was passed, I remember being in the hospital and he had passed and people were able to go in and see him. And I had stood there and I said, look, I promise I'll look after Nick, you know. So I promised I'd look after Nicola. But anyways, the funeral was there and I broke the promise straight away. I remember this day, the funeral, while Nicola was mourning, I was in the pub and everybody was congratulating me and stuff. You know, Jesus, well done, Danny, you're doing great. And I was sitting there drinking zero zero, you know, wanting people to see me and I felt good, but I said, look, come on, I'm going to go and I'll bring the kids home and stuff and went and got a bag of cocaine and I remember just thinking fuck but Nicola had come in from the 
come in from the funeral that night and as soon as she opened the door she just looked at me and she just knew. She just fucking knew what I'm had to do, you know. And I just straight away just shot for the door. And I went and I remember where I was living from the apartment, I ran. And I said this long laneway. And I stood there and I was almost like, What the fuck am I after doing? Like this is the day I've had that feeling and I'm after leaving and then the whole shame, you, you, you can't live with what you've had to do now. You fucking left it, you scumbag. You're that whole scumbag thing again. And I remember looking up the lane waiting, seeing Nicola coming out looking for me. As much as she wanted me to live, she came out looking for me. And I looked up the lane way at Nicola. She didn't see me. I seen her. And I looked back at my pocket. I looked back at my hand. And I had a bag of coke in my hand. And I chose the bag of coke. And at this point, I had been told I was getting to bed in Kilmoyne. I was due to go into Kilmoyne that Friday. And this was on the Tuesday I had used. So you can imagine when the cocaine ran out, how I was feeling. The couple of months of sobriety that I'm after getting, I'm after throwing her all away. And the promises again that I'm after making, I'm after throwing them all away again and everything that I'm after doing, I'm after just fucking doing it all again, fucking it all up. So I made the decision, still go up to kill mine, but don't tell them that I've used, right? Mm. But I needed I needed stuff to go in and I'd message Nicola. I said, look, I need I need some clothes to go into kill mine now. And I how she answered the fucking text message and said, I said, look, can you just leave some clothes outside the, at the apartment? So I remember I walked up the apartment. I was due to go to Kilmore at 10 o'clock on Friday morning. And at 9 o'clock I walked to the apartment door and I looked up and I seen a bag and there was some runners in it and some, a jacket and some tracksuits and stuff. And I walked up to Kilmore with a plastic bag in my hand and I fucking shit myself. I was so scared to think that if these guys tore me away here, God knows what's going to happen with the guilt and the shame and everything else and what I'm after doing to Nicola and God knows and I just didn't know how it was going to feel. So I remember I went in and greeted me with open arms like, oh Jesus, how's things and you done well and you have pre-entries and stuff and blah de blah and got shown around and one of the staff said to me, oh yeah, we'll get you for a year right now in a while. And I was thinking, fuck, you know what I thought, right? So that evening came about and still no call for the urine, yeah. I was thinking, right, that was grand. So got shown where I'm sleeping and I'm in bed and I'm lying in bed. And I'm thinking, right, they'll probably pull me out of bed now for the urine. They didn't pull me out of bed for the urine. The whole next day I went by and I still didn't get asked for the urine. And at this point as well, I'm guzzling the water, guzzling the water. As three, if that's going to, yeah. Three days later. They asked me for a urine and I came up clean. How? I don't know, but to this day, I believe it was Nicholas Dad. Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. it was him. And I was able to do my program, I killed mine. I've done six months residential now. Nicola was absolutely heartbroken. She didn't come up to see me, she dropped the kids off to me, but. She was mourning the loss of her father, mourning the loss of me, away from the family again. 
I just stuck at home with two kids, you know, and she's still mum. Yeah. Fuck Jesus Christ, yeah. Um and I'm in there getting myself better. Um I done my program, I I talked about a lot of stuff in there that I'd never ever thought I think I'd speak of. Um I got to know who I was. Um and it's crazy. So when I went in there the whole mask come up, you know. Um, the people pleasing come out. The happy-go-lucky chap come out. And got me through the first couple of weeks. And I remember sitting in the group room with about 34 other men, grown men. And a lot of stuff gets... It's it's absolutely magical what happens in there. And I remember they're about to kick off the group and somebody says, stop for a minute. Now everything's peer-led in there, so it's all done by the, by the clients. The staff are just sitting in the background. It's all by the clients. One of the clients, stop for a minute. Um, before we start this group, I want to put the group on Danny. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, Danny, you've come in here three weeks ago. You're a real nice fella, but why are you here? Well, it's because of an addiction. Like, yeah, but why are you really here? And I thought, fuck. I'm going to have to tell them who I really am and what I'm really here for. You know, I couldn't hide from this. Now, there's 34 lads there, and I'd be one of them 34 lads get to ask me whatever I want, and I have to openly answer it. I cried like a baby that day, answering the questions. Cried like a fucking baby. But I remember, when that group was done, how I felt afterwards. Such a relief. It's almost like if there was clouds, I was walking on them. And I just thought to myself, like, so all we have to do is just Talk about how I'm feeling and what's going on for me. I just need to tell people what is really going on inside. So throughout my program, that's what I've done. I spoke about how I felt. I actually wrote a life story in there. Um, the things that brought me up today. And I had to read out my life story to my peer. You know, and they had to ask me questions about it. And even that then, I was still seeking things. I was still finding out things about myself and stuff that I wouldn't have... I was being asked questions that I would never have asked myself because all these people are looking at it from a different view and they're asking questions and I'm answering them. So... There's something so profound and freeing about laying everything down on the table. Everything. Yeah. That nobody can take away from you because nobody, nobody can attack you. Nobody can come after you because... You've laid everything. It's out there. Mm. It's almost like, oh God, I've actually nothing left to say. Mm. You know, and you now know everything about me. Mm. And you're like, you know who I am. Who are you? Exactly. No, who are you? <laughs> I have a person now who, who will stare at a sunset and almost get emotional. If I watch The X Factor with the kids and there's an act on, I'll cry to it. And I'm all right with that. If I'm watching a Disney movie, I'm emotional. I live now a life that I'm all right. You know what I mean? I'm all right with how you look at me and how you... If you don't like me, all right, that's okay. Um, I cry. I laugh. I... Oh, it's... There's no I, ego. Yeah, even when I speak about it now, I, get, I feel happy. Do you know that way? I feel mm. really happy to know that. I'm the person who I've always wanted to be. If, if if I could just get this person at a young age, 
And this is why I always tell my kids, don't be afraid to be yourself, you know? Don't be afraid to cry. Don't be afraid to be honest. Don't be afraid to say something honest. Don't be afraid to say how you feel. You're a good person. I, I say hello to random people on the street because I get something from that and I hope to God that that person I might have just changed something their day, you know? I'm a good person. I like to help people. Not so people will say, oh, he's great. I like to help people because me helping people helps me. Do you know that way? Mm. It, it helps me helping people. Um, Tell me about your finished Kunmere. Cool mine. you're in. In cool mine. At what point is Nicola looking at you going, oh, we're on to something now? I guess when she may be saying how I spoke, how I looked at things, you know. I was getting visits and she was letting me come home. Um, she was letting me have an overnight and stuff. She let me stay there. Now, this is something that I thought would never, ever happen, you know. Um, and I suppose she just thought to herself, Roy, I think, I think he's actually serious this time. You know, because I've, I've spoke, I've spoke more shit than anything over the years. All the years I've said so much shit, but I've never actually done something without speaking about it first you know I've always spoke about it but this time I was doing it without speaking about it you know mm. I was showing her rather than telling her and I think that's what sort of made her realise okay I think this is I think this is him you know um, like while I was in Kilmine I was learning that I can do anything I want <laughs> there's absolutely nothing restricting it in life um, I went over to play football in Mexico Represented Ireland, you know, for the Homeless World Cup because I was in addiction, because I was homeless. I, got, I wore the Ireland jersey in Mexico City with the national anthem playing, you know. I got emotional over there. I felt it. I felt actually what I was doing and I was able to be real and take it all in, you know. Nicola remembers a lot of growing up. I don't remember anything because I never took anything in, you know. But I remember these things now because I'm fully there, I'm fully present. And all these moments that's happening. When I come out of Kilmoyne then, being there for my kids, being present, you know that way? Mm. Um, little things. Kids asking a question, do you want to bring me to the playground? Whereas if before I'd brush it off, I'd say no. It's now it's like, yeah, let's go. Mm. You know? Able to do things as a family and not have the guilt and the shame or the worry that somebody's going to ring your phone call, ring your phone when you're out with Nicola and you have to put it on silent really quickly, not having that fear. You know, that fear walking around. Um, but recovery, since coming into recovery and since looking at life through a different lens, man, it's fucking been amazing. 2018, I went into treatment and it's been the best decision I've ever done. So, like, I will do something now. If you tell me, nah, you wouldn't have to do that, I'll say, okay, well, let me try. Mm. Because if I fail, I'll say, okay, why did I fail? I'm learning, you know? Mm. If I succeed, I'm thinking, see, I'm actually able to do that. Mm. I'm grown as an individual. Um, I've went on to RTA's Ultimate Hell Week, you know? Mm. Things like that you don't do. Somebody coming from a life that I came from, um, I've just realised that I actually can't do anything I want. I can 
meet all these wonderful people and have conversations with strangers, you know, hold a conversation and talk about crazy things. You know, I want people to tell me the mad stuff, you know, not the, I'm a hard person and I've this and I've all that money. Look, I don't care about that, but tell me how you feel, you know, tell me the little things, you know, how you feel when you look at late and the sunsets and how you feel when you're, Daughter's telling you how she feels, you know. Conversations like that is what I absolutely love now. I love just finding out more and more about myself every day. It's it's just something that once I have the blinkers off now, it's it just makes me happy to and I'm so grateful. Every day I am grateful. There's times where you can lose sight of your gratitude, you know, mm -hmm. but you just have to bring it back and remember where you were and how far you've came and that people love you for who you are, you know, and that the past is the past. You can't change it, but your life is a blank page. You get to determine what happens next. Mm. It's just, if I'd have known this as a young kid, a young adult, if I'd have known this as a young adult, things would have been so different. But I didn't because I was blinded by the area I grew in and the things I was seeing and the materialistic things and, you know, I listened to all the stupid things and not listened to the, to the right things. I'd love to go back to school, you know. I went back to school. You know, I, I went back to do a diploma. And, like, I failed my junior said, I failed mm. everything, you know. As the teacher said, you're brutal, you're never going to go anywhere. Mm. Walking around UCD last year, you know, <laughs> doing a diploma. I'm just like, what is this? But it just so happens that if you put your mind to it, you can do it. If you change your thinking, you can do it. Regardless of where you are in life, your thoughts have brought you there, mm. you know. My thoughts brought me down addiction, brought me to homelessness, brought me to prison, because that's what my thoughts were. That's what my thinking was. Once you change your thinking, that's it. You know, the world is your oyster. How's Nicholas today? Ah, she's happy, you know. She's, uh, she still tells me, you know, when I'm a prick, you know, she still tells me when I'm an arsehole. She still tells me when I do wrong. And I love her for that. would never change her. I love her for everything that she does. She, uh, Do you work on your relationship every day? Yeah, we try to, you know. Mm. There's times when when walking, when Nicola's walking, this night, you know, life gets in the way of things, you know. But we ask each other every day, how was your day, you know? Mm. We think it's very important just to check in and say, how was your day, mm. you know? If you go by that, you know, they're going to sleep with not being able to talk about how their day was. Not being able to talk to somebody about something that happened, you know. Um, she asked me how my day was, how's work? I asked her, how's your day been? How's work? How's the kids? That you know, we ask the kids every day. There's a little thing that the kids do. <laughs> so, how's everybody's day? Mm -hmm. You know, this is how they say it, you know. But uh, that's what we do. Looking back at your 12 year old self, do you think you would be the, sitting here now telling this no. story? No. I pictured a life of crime and a life of drugs and a life of criminality and at 12 years old I would have looked at somebody who probably would have had nothing and 
would have had a street credit and a street name, and I would have thought, that's me. That's going to be me when I get older, you know what I mean? Still selling drugs, I've laid in doing something, you know? That's what, my, that's what I thought my life was going to be. Mm. But once the fog lifts, and once you sort of say, I actually get to determine how my life is going to be, you know? Mm. Um, my past doesn't predict the future. That's one thing that I've learned, that whatever my past is, that is not determining my future. Mm. Never in a million years would it have my life is to be the way it is now. When you come into recovery, there's a term they say is living a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I remember when I first came into recovery, I thought, Jesus, yeah, you know, speedboats, yachts, mm. millionaire, you know. Mm. That was, that's what my thinking was. But a life beyond my wildest dreams is my life now because it's all beyond my wildest dreams. I would never have thought of my life being like this. It's the simple little things, you know. Ice bats in the morning. You know, waking up in the morning, sitting out in my backyard with a coffee in my hand and just sitting there. If the neighbours were to look at me, they're thinking, he's off his head. But I'm not, I'm happy. Mm. It's my happiness, you know. Nicola still thinks I'm laden headbanging, you know. She just, I tell her some of the stuff that I'm doing. She's like, what? But she loves me for it, you know, and she supports me. What are you doing? Everything. Everything, everything I want. Mm. Anything I want, you know what I mean? I'm doing everything I'm... Through COVID, you know, I wanted to keep running. I wanted to keep active. So I set a running club up, mm. you know. Me and another four individuals now, we have this amazing running club that help people go from not being able to run to run marathons, mm. you know. We're helping people find themselves. Same way I found myself, you know. Um, like I, was on a, I was on a Zoom call last night with Athletics Ireland, you know, the club's going to be official. An mm. official club, you know, mm. all down to me and a group of people working hard and helping people. You know, I'm I'm doing I'm doing races. I've ran in Hamburg, ran marathons, you know. Isn't it mad? Because you know as well, the lads from the other city was on as well, and Jennifer yeah. Faye with Sheriff Street uh, Running Club. It's mad how so many people in recovery are finding outlets like that and finding their community. So. Being active, running has a major, major part in my sobriety. And I only done this little study in college there about how it has such an impact, you know, and I think a poll should be done in areas, you know, mm. how staying active has a major role to play. Um, because it has in mine. But the same with some people go to the gym, you know. Some people do ice baths every morning, see swimming. It's all this healthy living that... It's it's the feel good that we seek from drugs that we get from these things, you know. Or you go out on a run. There's been times when I'm out running that and I'm crying when I'm running because I get this high, such a high that it's brought me to an emotion where I'm actually crying and I'm feeling so good about myself. I'm running through town, you know, and I'm going to cry and someone's probably looking and saying, it's okay. And I'm like, oh, I'm brilliant. I'm absolutely amazing. I'm really, really happy, you know. Um, but that's what I want. I want people to realise that do things that you don't think you're going to do. Mm. Like if somebody said to me when I was in prison, you know that running is really good and yoga is really good and mm. getting up at five in the morning and jumping into the noise bath is really good. I would have stuck my finger up and said, ram it, mm. no chance, you know, because that's what my thinking was. Mm. But it's only now you hear of all these amazing clubs in our city, Sheriff Street, Cherry Orchard, all these amazing clubs and they're helping so many people. You know, they're, 
whether it's addiction, whether it's work, whether it's a toxic relationship, whether it's anything, whatever you're struggling from, for a half an hour to an hour you take to get down to that running club and take yourself out and just breathe and just let loose and do that little thing for yourself. You know, it's, it's amazing. It really is amazing. Is that how you're protecting your sobriety, the tour sobriety? Absolutely. I got hit by a car. Yeah, here's another one. I got hit by a car a year and three months ago, 15 months ago. I was out cycling and I got hit by a car and I went straight through this man's windscreen. And if it wasn't for my helmet, I'd be killed stone dead. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I remember lying in the hospital and just thinking to myself, that's how, that's how, that's how simple it can be. I went out Nicola said to me, go on, go for your cycle, you know. She knows, you know. And I said, yeah, well, I went out, you know, cycling around the park, some cabra, fingers coming down, and bang, that was it. The blink of an eye. Went straight to a fella's windscreen. And I remember lying on the ground, and from the neck down, it was completely numb, completely numb. And there was a lady there, and she was trying to help me, you know. She's like, you're okay, you're okay. And I got a bit upset, and I thought, I can't feel me body. And I said to myself, I'm paralyzed. I'm going to be paralyzed the rest of my life. And through the whole recovery from that, I've realized that it can be over like that. So, you know, as the whole science goes, live every day like it's your last. Do the things that you want to do. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Spend that money. Buy that thing that you're seeing online. Go for that holiday that you want to go with. Because who knows what's around the corner. You know, that way you have no idea. God forbid, I could be sitting here talking to you, I could drive home and an accident mm. could happen. You just don't know. So when people ask me, will you help this person or will you try and talk to this person? Absolutely, no problem at all. I will do whatever because why not? You know, life is too short. Um, You've put Nicola through the poxy mill, haven't you? Uh, absolutely, through the poxy <laughs> mill. You know, through the absolute mill. Oh my God. Yeah, through the mill. And she's still here today, 19 years this year. Jesus. Yeah. Through the mail. She's still here today. An amazing person. Absolutely amazing person. Really is. Um last night at half nine at night I'm saying to her, I'm going for a run, she just gives me the nod, you know. Yeah. I think if anybody else they'd probably say, How the fuck do you get away with that? You know, she just she knows me. Do you know now that you are loved and you deserve love? I know now that I'm loved by people who I don't even know. And that, like, I've read messages that people have sent me and I've got really, really emotional. Um, because I don't even know this person, but yet they're able to show me such love just for... It took me a long time to realise what I'm actually doing, you know? People are like, Danny, do you know what you're doing is really, really good? And I'm like, ah, you know, I brush it off. Look, I brush a lot of things off, but... I know now that, yeah, I am loved and I love myself. How do you check that ego? How do you keep the ego away with everything? Because was that your downfall with everything? Yeah, it was. Um, I'm not perfect, you know. Mm. Um, but I'm okay with that. Mm. Whereas if before I had this big act, this big persona, 
and I had to keep that up. But now I'm, I'm all right with who I am, and if you don't like me, that's okay, you know? I'll still say hello to you, you know? I'll still show you some sort of act of kindness. I'll still, like Nicola just hates me as well, a lot of times, like, somebody could have been mean to me in the past, you know? Nicola's, Nicola, she holds stuff, you know? But she's still a good person. She lets it go in her own time. But I could be saying, oh, look, such and such ask me to go to this. And like, but she said, I wouldn't do that for you. And I'm like, yeah, but no, but that's not, that's not what it's about, you know? She's like, yeah, you're right, you know? So look, just help people when you can, you know. Uh, everybody just needs a little help and hand sometimes. Tell me about Alex and the other little Frankie May. Frankie May. Unreal, like <coughs> they bring out the best in me. Like it's crazy when I think of how mad they are, and then it's only within the last five years where people have seen how. Like, I'm a little bit tapped, you know, and I'm all right with that, you know, I'm a little bit out there, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw my kids, absolute characters. Alex is a, she's such an amazing kid, she's really becoming herself now, you know, a character. She's finding her path now, she's at that age, she's finding who she is. And it's up to me and Nicola to allow her, you know, we can't force her or say, you have to do A, B, and C. And with us not forcing her, she's coming to us and she's asking us questions, you know, and she's she's telling us things. And we're just really, really proud of her. Absolutely proud of her. Um, she's the kindest, kindest heart. She's the sweetest soul. Um, she's a tough cookie, you know, a real tough cookie. I wonder where she gets that from. Yeah, you know, she's fucking she's a tough cookie. She had her first fighting skill, you know. It was a boy. Jesus. Boy hair, you know. She played and laid out onto him. You know, she'd done boxing for a couple of years, you know. Let's just say, sure the boy was sorry enough. But I was delighted to hear that, you know, because she, she'd done it all herself. Myself and Nicola were worried, but she protected herself. She'd done it all herself, you know, and she spoke about it afterwards. She didn't bottle it up. Frankie May, mad as a brush. She would buy and sell you. She's been around before, you know. But she's such a character and such a sweetheart. Myself and Nicola was only reading our school report today and the two of us just absolutely burst them with pride, you know. They just, we have a great thing going, you know. Me and Nicola in the driver's seat and the two kids at the back, you know, and that's it. We're made up, you know, the two dogs, you know, Pablo and Ollie. You know, we're our own little house there and we're just, we're happy, you know. Are you happy? Absolutely happy and that's, that's what makes life. Don't get me wrong. There's times where something would happen or, you know, everything isn't happiness, you know. Families go through it. These things happen in life that's out of our control and we speak about it and we deal with it. You know, that's that's all you can do. Mm. There's no point in dwelling on it. There's no point in getting too upset about it because if, if it's out of your hands, you can't change it. That's, that's how you live life. And on that note, we leave it there. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for sitting down. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.